conversation this week with uh, Charles Wookie. Uh, just stood down from CEO of Blueprint for Better Business, the charity that believes that biz- uh, business is a force for good in society. Uh, and he talks about his work there, what happened afterwards, um, what's happening now in terms of his coming alongside. He described, he's done a, a number of things. Obviously, uh, he's a seven. He's an enthusiastic visionary, but I think enthusiast um, is is the key word here. Uh, he his uh, his energy is in, infectious. Uh, he is clearly a leader. Uh, he can influence and bring people together to think about deeply about things that matter. Uh, it's a wonderful gift. I asked him about um, what might be the the traits of a, of a good alongsider. Um, and he said uh, the capacity to give uh, and to help um, enable the desire to do one's best. Um, someone who believes in uh, me as the the person they're alongside, and also someone who can give honest feedback. I believe those are qualities which are, are, are needed in the workplace uh, big time um, at the moment. And I know you will enjoy hearing from Charles, uh, and your feedback as ever will be uh, most welcome. And uh, we look forward to uh, joining you on the podcast in due course. Take care. Bye. Hi, welcome to the Alongside a Podcast. Um, I'm really, really pleased uh, to introduce um, somebody who I got to know a little bit. Um, Charles Wookie, um, who I met, I think, eight years ago, because I got a LinkedIn thing the other day saying that I've been part of Blueprint for Better Business for eight years. So I suspect that's when I when I joined it. So uh, it's amazing how time passes swiftly when you're enjoying yourself. Um, but uh, I've really been impressed with Charles, um, for his, his energy uh, and the whole thing he brings to, to his work. So look, without any further ado, uh, Charles, um, welcome to Alongsider. And how might, uh, if somebody else was going to introduce Charles Wookie, what might they say? Well, first of all, thank you, Philip, very much for the opportunity to have this chat. And I do like the framing of a lot. Well, we'll find out what happens in the conversation, but I like the framing of being alongside. It's a lovely way of thinking about life and what happens. Uh, so I am uh, kind of freelance, I suppose I describe myself now. I, I stopped full-time work 18 months ago um, uh, and I run a part-time consulting business and do a bit of teaching and a bit of piano playing. I appear to have acquired two granddaughters um, and um, kind of at the stages of working out the next phase of life. Um, uh, and I've been very fortunate to have wandered around a whole number of different universes really in my career. Um, but I don't think of myself as retired, and I have a kind of slight aversion at the moment anyway to describing myself in those terms. And in fact, I'm carrying on working and I'm loving it. Mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I'm part of a group down in Bristol, which sort of came out of the university there, which is uh, the Critical Coaching Group, which has been a wonderful source of inspiration. They get all sorts of speakers and stuff. And the guy who organises that, um, um, who is a wonderful um, energy in itself, and he retired from his job with the university, um, and uh, and some and he felt really empty at the end of that. 
And uh, he went to some function shortly afterwards and he met some friend and he was just opening the boot and taking his um, academic gown out because it was appropriate for the occasion. And uh, and the person said, "Well, so what are you up to?" And he said, "Oh, I'm retired." And she said, "Oh, no, you're not. You're not retired. You're re-attiring," <laughs> um, which I think is another another set of clothes. And uh, and what I noticed uh, as the way you introduced yourself was, um, and it's only eighteen months ago you were doing something else, which we might come back to perhaps. But um, these different things: consulting, playing the piano, uh, grandchildren, etc. This, dare I say it. Is the is the sort of um, thing that somebody who is an enthusiastic visionary <laughs> looking at the future would would get bored with only doing one thing and is interested in this and that and this and the other and everything else. But I happen to know that you aren't just a dilettante. Uh, you actually do these things very seriously. And if I could just uh, go back to about a year ago, I was talking to you, and you just I think well only just sort of come out of um, into into quotes retirement. And I said, oh, what are you up to? And he said, well, I've always wanted to, and it, it was a piano thing. Would you like to finish the story of what um, what you what you did? Yes, I mean, I, I, I've i been a, um, a keen amateur pianist um, all my life, really. I suppose I started playing when I was about nine and was good enough to sort of play occasionally in public, but never good enough to be a, a professional musician. But I've um, I did it seriously enough to want to continue trying to play through my life and um, um, before I left school I I played the movement of a piano concerto with the school orchestra and actually when I left going out the, in the evening one of the teachers said to me he said don't don't ever stop playing you'll be amazed how much pleasure it gives you throughout your life if you can keep this going and it was a very kind thing to say and I, I remember it and and I, I remember thinking then I am going to really try and keep this up so I did and there's there's another concerto and playing with an orchestra for a pianist is an unbelievably exciting and wonderful thing to do if a bit scary and there was another concerto that, I, that even from then i mean and i had the music i always thought god one day i would love to play this it's a rather mad piece um so it's you know rachmaninoff second piano concerto which um mm. has a lot of notes um and during lockdown i started working on it really kind of thinking well maybe i might one day actually do this and then decided yes partly um as a project immediately after stopping full-time work that I would actually really do it. And with some friends tried to turn it into, in fact, my wife who was working as a counselor at the hospice in Eastbourne said, look, let's turn this from a vanity project into something socially useful by raising money for the hospice. <laughs> so that's what we did. And so um, with a wonderful guy called Andy Sherwood, who conducted Brighton Youth Orchestra for many years, very kindly said, look, I'll come along and conduct an orchestra. And we, some people gave some money to help us and professional players. And so it was a, was a kind of scratch occasion um in the sense the orchestra just met on the day um and um my old piano teacher who taught me when i was at school um a long time ago and he's now retired from teaching and playing but very kindly wonderful man called philip folk came out of retirement and helped me mm. and so yes so I, I did that concerto with an orchestra at the end of november um and it was very scary but fantastic to do i mean a fantastic feeling it was a wonderful ex i mean extraordinary experience really yeah well i was there you very kindly invited me and my wife came as well and um what 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 uh intrigued me um was you you said philip was the teacher who who so came alongside you because this is the theme of what we're doing here it's about coming alongside us coming alongside others and others coming alongside us 
What did that do for you to have him alongside? You I mean you knew him before as a much younger person, but you're an adult now. Yes, I mean I met him because he came to judge a school music competition when I was 15 and he was about 23 and he was then a student at the Royal Academy and he went on to have a very distinguished career as a international concert pianist and we became friends actually I mean he stopped teaching me but we kept up through life and when I emailed him and told him I had this idea of doing this thing he very kindly said look I'll help you but and he did come alongside me in a in a in a kind of um bracing way I mean in the sense he said look if you're serious about doing this it's a hell of a piece um here are the things you need to do one of the things he said at a fairly early stage which was a bit scary was he said look you've got to do this from memory because you don't have time to look at your score and the conductor and listen to the orchestra. And if you need to look at the score, you don't know it well enough to be doing it anyway. So learn it. Um, uh, and, um, uh, uh, and and then he we met fairly regularly in the early part of the autumn. And he he was sharing his own experience. I mean, he performed this thing 20 times. And then in, in the insight of his own score, he had the list of the public performances, the first of which was with Simon Rattle and the Liverpool Philharmonic Orchestra in 1973. Well, he he's you know and he's played it at the proms. He he recorded it, so he knows the piece incredibly well. He knows therefore all the pitfalls and where the bits. If you're the soloist, you have to look at the conductor. Um, and so he was incredibly generous, really, especially as he'd stopped teaching. So I was kind of inviting him back to re-enter a life he was kind of left slightly behind, um, uh, which was again sort of another form of generosity on his part, really. But. So he, I very much felt he was coaching and alongside me, yes, in the process of trying to come to terms with what it actually means to play one of these things. Yeah, because I, I, I did dabble with um, uh, lessons again in the not too distant past, and the teacher was a concert pianist, and she says there's two modes of playing: one is practice, and the other one is performance. And she said, in performance, then there are no mistakes. <laughs> and, and that's a mindset <laughs> well yeah yeah i mean philip didn't say that one but, but one of the things which is a, a, a bracing and scary thought is the difference between an amateur and a professional so an amateur is somebody who learns something until they can play it right and a professional is somebody who learns something until they can't play it wrong yeah, well. so even on a bad day when you're not feeling terribly well if this is your job you can understand this i mean if it's your job for a living you show up you basically got to play it right. I didn't play this thing right. I mean, I made several crashing mistakes and the conductor was wonderful. Um, uh, I did manage not to fall off the stool. So I actually got through the thing with the orchestra to the end. Um, we started we started together and finished together. So that was one achievement. <laughs> Which you did. Uh, I always remember uh, the the first, it was at Eastbourne College, wasn't it? And uh, yeah. Which is a lovely uh, acoustics are great. And, uh, and I was on the side uh, there's a sort of U-shaped thing, and and you could see the side of the orchestra. But um, uh, they were friends you had there, weren't they? They were, they were definitely um, they were for you, the, the audience. Yeah, yeah, no, they were. I mean, we were very lucky. We had about 180 people there, but uh, but you know, we'd invited people who wanted to support the hospice, or people that I knew, or, or obviously also people who were friends of members of the orchestra. So it was a very warm feeling of enthusiasm and, you know, as a kind of slightly more quixotic project, but, but it all in a good cause. And we ended up raising quite a lot of money for the hospice, which was wonderful. How much was it? 60, yeah, they raised 65,000. Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. And uh, I remember in the, I mean, I, I know the, 
piece, you know, well enough, I suppose, not to play, but I mean to listen to. And uh, at the end of the first movement, most people in the room applauded, which I thought was lovely. But it was all, everybody's shoulders dropped because we were so <laughs> pleased you got through the first Relief. Relief. <laughs> He's still on the stool, yeah. <laughs> so we were alongside you in, in, that, in that respect. The other, the, other, the other observation, and I'm just picking this up because I think it was a lovely, extraordinary thing to do, very courageous, uh, but also something you'd had a desire to do for a long time. Yeah. Um, and also the other alongside of that teacher, the same teacher said, don't stop playing. Um, and it was for yourself and others was the, was the point, wasn't it? It was a, it was, there was a sort of mutual thing about the community, but the, um, the other thing that we I, I noticed, I'm sure everybody else did, was this wonderful um, alongside of the conductor, Andy, and you. Um, in terms, because what became very apparent, I'd play a tiny bit, but what I could see was really a challenge was to keep in time with the orchestra. Because yeah. the sort yeah. of, front, in other words, that alignment. And his, yeah. his job seemed to be to keep you... And he, he knew exactly when to pick you up, when, you know, et cetera, uh, which was just a, a wonderful thing to to witness, actually. Yeah, well, well, and it, it, I mean, he was brilliant. I mean, he's brilliant. He's a fantastic conductor. And a lot of the people who came and played um, had been as students under him at, at Brighton Youth Orchestra or other orchestras, including one of my sons uh, and my daughter-in-law, in fact, in Somerset Youth Orchestra. But uh, And he has a wonderful following of affectionate following among a number of people who are now older. And a number of the orchestra players are in their thirties who came back and said, "Oh, yeah, if Andy's conducting, absolutely, I'm going to, I'm in." I'm in. So th there was a strong rapport that he had with a lot of the people who were playing, uh, and he's a very experienced professional conductor. And and you know, I played it through with him a couple of times beforehand, and we talked about it. But he, but on the day he, he came up to me before we started, and um, I said, "Look, um, well, well, first thing he said was, well done, you've done it. You know, you you you've learned it, you can play it. Uh, so now enjoy it.'" And the third thing he said was, I'll catch you, you know, and, and and he needed to a couple of times where I didn't quite go off the rails, but we're having a steadying hand of a conductor. Uh, and, and the image in my mind was, you know, when I learned to ride a bike and was about to fall over and my father's hand would come out the back and just steady the, steady the bike so he didn't fall off. And that was exactly what he did a couple of times. Mm -hmm. And and But he also said, my job as a conductor is to is to, is to follow the soloist, you know. You do your thing. Um, but, of course, I got the opposite instruction from Philip, uh, who said, Charles, just look at the conductor and do what he says. So just make sure you stay in time with him. So I was getting slightly different signals from these two characters. But but be, between the two, and, and actually what was lovely was that I hadn't realised this when we first started it, but it turns out that they know each other very well. They are both professors together at Trinity School of Music, where Andy Sherwood still teaches and Philip Folk was a was a uh, professor of piano so they they both know each other and have a very high regard for each other as well so there was a kind of rather lovely symmetry there um yeah oh that's lovely um i, I really i well we thoroughly enjoyed the whole thing, experience of it um and so thank you for for allowing us to participate in that um i just that this podcast has got alongside it. it's called finding your place and taking your place and in a way I, I i think you described finding your place in that endeavor you're doing there and actually taking it because you had to do it and uh, mm. i mean would you just would you just i know you've done a number of things and you've got a different thing would you just sort of take us briefly through the things that you the, the, the key how did you decide because uh, i know at university you did um physics and philosophy 
Yeah, what, I, what attracted yeah. you to that? Well, I did science A levels. Um, I, I was just reasonably good at maths and physics, and I enjoyed them. But I knew I didn't want to just be a scientist, and I also enjoyed English and history and philosophy. And I, in my last term at, at school, I did a bit of philosophy. So, uh, and I didn't realize this course existed. But then I found it and, and um, thought, actually, that would be perfect because it's a bit of writing and a bit of math. Uh, and I did. I, I loved it. It was a wonderful, wonderful experience. I mean, a completely useless degree, but but um, in the sense of it's not practical at all. But but it it, um, it was absolutely fascinating, particularly philosophy of science. And, the, and there was a special paper on the philosophy of physics. Um, but I'd always been interested in the relationship between science and religion. Um, and I stayed on at university after and did a diploma in theology. So basically, I had a medieval education going from physics, philosophy to theology. And I was thinking then of doing a, a some sort of higher degree on some aspect of the relationship between science and religion. But then I read a book by a guy called Brian Appleyard, which basically said everything I thought much better. So I thought, oh, well, that's already been written. So I can't do that. <laughs> and, then, and, and then I thought, well, I will probably do something to make a living, you know, go and earn a living. So I became an accountant, as people do when they're not really sure what to do. Um, and I was fairly quickly um convinced that it was not really what i wanted to do but i also thought it would probably be quite helpful to stay and qualify so i stayed at what was pete marwick in london now kpmg i left two days after qualifying and what i left to go and do was um a couple of mates of mine from university had become clerks at the house of commons and they said, this is really good fun because you get the summer off and i love walking in mountains and the idea of having three months off in the summer which I persuaded the audit firm to let me do because there was on the whole no audits in the summer. So if, especially if you took unpaid leave, which I did for two years running, I just went walking in the pool. So I, I quite working life with a couple of months off in the summer to go walking. So this seemed I could continue this and actually a bit more interesting than being an accountant. And so I, I was lucky enough to get in as a clerk and, and worked as a clerk at the Commons for a few years uh, on the Trade and Industry Select Committee in the Public Bill Office. So I learned a bit about the political world, um, which was fascinating. Um, and then I, I kind of various things happened in life. So I, I left there, um, uh, uh, went on a retreat, actually, to try and work out what to do with my life. And then um, uh, worked for a while for an economics research institute called the Institute for Physical Studies. Did some work with them on tax reform. And then I ended up um, meeting a Catholic cardinal called Basil Kuhn to try and get some money out of him for a project I was working on. Um, and then rather unexpectedly, he offered me a job uh, working for him. And because he said, well, he worked in politics, you know, some economics, you know, some philosophy and theology. Um, I need somebody in my office. Um, so I, I ended up working for him and I thought I'll do this for two or three years, maybe because I'd never done anything longer than three years. Um, but he was the most wonderful man. No, I'm not surprised. Uh, <laughs> he, he was the most wonderful man. And I ended up staying with him for 11 years until he died. And then his successor, Cormac Murphy O'Connor, Worked for him for a bit, and then I worked for this organisation called the Catholic Bishops Conference, which is the national office of the Catholic Church, and uh, and uh, did some policy work for them and various other things. Um, and then found myself working more with business leaders in the early 2000s uh, on various projects. And after the financial crisis, ended up helping organise some seminars in the city about ethics in finance after the financial crisis. Um, and then with a group of people 
that led to really setting up this charity called the Blueprint for Better Business. So it came out of an approach that some business leaders made to the cardinal around Catholic social thought as an ethical critique of the market system as it had been before the financial crisis. And so I ended up working on the formation of that and then ended up leaving working uh, for the God business, as I think of it, uh, and working for this charity and then ended up um, running it. Um, so, so I've had a rather weird career, really, moving from completely different sectors. Uh, but I've been incredibly lucky and have enjoyed pretty much, not all of it, but an awful lot of it, I've found I found very fulfilling. And I, I, for me, a good criteria, I mean, I, this retreat I did when I was in my late 20s was quite formative for me. And I, at that point, I knew I did not want to get to the age of 80 and look back and think, damn, if only I know what I know now, I'd have done something completely different. So I was quite determined to try and find things that I felt were a good use of me and stimulating and enjoyable um, and fulfilling and worthwhile, you know, worthwhile use of whatever gifts I've got. And I think by and large, I've been able to do that. And um, you, you, thank you so much for that. I mean, the, the interesting uh, thing that you're picking up there is you've covered a lot of ground, um, you know, in terms of commerce, government, policy, um, how societies makes decisions. And you ended up with this blueprint for better business, which was in that context about um, how do we make decisions um, as we seek to get from here to there. So there's an intention of moving from here to there. Um, and I, I, I was uh, uh, enjoyed the, the, the group um, conversations that you've got going about Blueprint. But I always got, and then I joined some of the consultants and coaching conversations. Yeah, and yeah. There was a bit of herding cats sort of stuff around that um, that went on, I think. Um, <laughs> and there seemed to be quite a lot of question marks about, well, actually, it, what is it that we're talking about? What, 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 what you know, what does good look like around um, having a blueprint um, for business? And that actually behind all of that is a belief that it's a force for good in society. Uh, yeah. it's, the, it's the business business. The God business is something else. Interestingly, um, I'm, I just recorded another podcast for this for this podcast alongside a, with, with a musician who is a master musician, organist. Um, mm. And he uh, ended up uh, from going from music to a thing called conducting business, which is a for leaders for leaders to recognize how do you build community. Yeah, a, yeah, yeah. And it strikes me that is actually what Blueprint for Better Business was 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 is seeking to do is to be able to uh, get people together and the better thinking um, as you make decisions. So a coach is, I think, ultimately a thinking partner. Um, and I just want, was curious um, along the way from your different iterations um, up the mountains and down the mountains and stuff. One where you were there longest for, from what you said, with the cardinal. What, what, what did being alongside the cardinal? You know, you said it was quite formative um, alongside the retreat, actually. But what, what, what rubbed off on you from being alongside him in the God business and and vice versa? Well, I think I learned an enormous amount uh, from just observing him and being with him. Uh, in many different sorts of situations and 
how he dealt with them, how he responded, um, how he didn't respond, by which I mean he was very aware of the um, the hasty decision. Um, and also if somebody came in with a strongly a strong point of view on something, you know, he said, well, there are always two sides. You know, I've, we've heard this side. What's the what's the rest of the story here? So he was very savvy, uh, but he was also very um, wise to how someone in a big public position as he was in, because he had a very high public reputation. I mean, he was seen as a as a as a as a as a, as a kind of um, a strong religious leader in the in the best sense. I think a holy man. Actually, people thought of him as, and he was conscious of the way in which particularly the way in which the media can try and use people in his sorts of positions and yet also that he would need to in a way to use the media himself you know you're there it's a way of communicating and and how you how you negotiate and think through when you should become involved and what you should say and how should how you should be there were there were ways in which he managed to i suppose have a public life with real integrity is what was probably the best way of summarizing it which he did um uh and he was very self-aware he never stopped being a monk i think that was part of it mm. so he did have this public role but he wouldn't particularly seek social situations and he kept his spiritual life going and he was grounded um and he was shrewd and he was wise and and he was also very funny um mm. fantastic sense of humor and so there was a lightness about him. One of the other things, which I, I remember distinctly being with him in a meeting, knowing there were about 10 or you know, two or three really tricky issues he was dealing with, and somebody came to see him. And his capacity to put all of those things totally out of his head and give his complete conscious attention to the person in front of him, I thought it was extraordinary. I could never do that. I'd be thinking, when, when's this person buggering off so I can go back to the things that I've really got to worry about? But he had this, you know, and it was a spiritual discipline, I think. He's a wonderful, decentered human being. You know, this person in front of me is the person who matters now. And I, my, you know, what I can give them is my full attention. And that's what I'll do. And he did. And he, he graced people with his full attention, which is an amazing gift. Yeah, I hear that. Now I did that's presence. And um, didn't he play squash? Was he in my yeah, yeah, that was before my time. Yeah, he was a bit older by the time I started working for him. But yes. Um, Okay, so, so that's quite fast um, and reactive as well, you know, and being present to what happens. Because the, the thing that, that interests me, uh, I, I wonder along this about this alongside it. I mean, the seven, which is the enthusiastic visionary, um, which we just did the Enneagram and, and that's what you come in. And, and I'm, I'm, I think anybody listening, the, 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 the seven is future paced. It's looking forward possibly on the next hill or waiting to get on the next hill when everybody else is on this one. Um, but they're also seeing a very different way of doing things. And um, and everybody else hasn't seen it yet. Um, so these are the entrepreneurs. Um, um, and there's there's a certain type of seven, which is a social one, which is the one that would, would, would actually give up possibly something else because this cause is um, is important. This purpose cause, the blueprint cause, um, how, if you'd ask the young Charles, uh, who was 
uh, just done his diploma and um, and I was thinking about what to do next. Um, what would what would um, what would he think of this thing that that, that the older Charles took on around um, purpose uh, for business? I think he'd have been amazed or very surprised. I don't. It would certainly. Yes, I, 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 I mean, I, I've always struggled to have um, forward plans. Really, I mean, I've, I'm, I've been, I found, been lucky enough to find the next thing that really uh, excited me, and I've kind of gone with that. But I've not really um, had the kind of ten, five, ten, let alone longer term sort of vision of what I really wanted to do. But the bizarre thing is. That if you if you ask a slightly different question, which is to say, well, so if you were going to run a charity that's drawing on things like Catholic social thought and virtue ethics, and wants to be economically literate and talk sense to be able to sort of have a degree of plausibility to senior executive of large organisations, the kinds of things I'd done, being a chartered accountant, having done those various worked in those various worlds, actually was incredible. All of it has been useful. All of, I've used everything. In what I'd done before in Blueprint, um, so in reverse, it's kind of worked, but I didn't plan it. Because I, I, I think that's really insightful. I mean, I, the thing I've noticed that uh, I coach in lots of different sectors with different people, and uh, and personally, um, you come into a new stage of doing something, and nobody's more surprised than me to, than to realize how equipped I am to do it. But it's actually because what went before has built on that. The thing I notice, I work with a lot of sevens uh, who are startup, scale up. Maybe they've already made their their thing. And I work with, um, for example, uh, an organisation that uh, works with excluded children, and uh, for seven years now, Nudge Education. And um, the guy who started it, who is Brazilian, in fact, and lives here, um, has a heart for the excluded. So and really does. So their their mantra is no child is left behind. Mm. But it didn't stop there. They've actually got a methodology that they adopt and they get amazing results. Right. And I think in business on the whole, if you're persuading somebody to do something, whether it's coaching or anything else, it's about well, show me, demonstrate, and I'll and I'll um you know and I'll believe it. The the stage that this this nudge is at is that the founders have actually delegated the the growth the next growth phase to a new executive team, and they've got to step into a different place, and and I've noticed that it, a lot of that is about enabling um, the next generation to do what they did, which was inspire the next generation. It's actually passing on the baton thing, and I just wondered in terms of that with blueprint. Um, this this whole idea that that um, I'm making this up now, but you know, business has a soul at its best. Business is a force for good in society. Um, how do you go about passing on your what you've learned and what you your passion for this is? Suppose what well, the first thing to say is that, um, and I was asked this. I remember you know by well, one of these dinners, which which was the way in which Blueprint got going. You know, with a chair of a big company who said to me, so well, so since you've been back working in the business world, what have you noticed? You know, you spent most of your life in these other worlds. And to which I found myself saying, well, what I noticed is the similarity that these are all people. Yeah. And actually, you know, they're different sorts of organizations. They may be 
operating under the constraints of market mechanisms as opposed to the public sector or as opposed to a voluntary organization or a church even. But in the end, these are people. And I remember thinking when I worked in the church and I became what I called to, to the bishop's collar blind. You know, somebody may be wearing a collar, but basically this is a human being. Mm. And they come in all shapes and sizes. And the same is true. So, so I think I think what what people and organizations have in common by the fact that what we're dealing with is this the relationships and interactions of human beings in service of some common purpose which draws them together is actually much, much more important than the than the different kinds of forms that that takes. And I suppose my passion for one, well, and it has become a bit of a passion for, for business. Um, and maybe, you know, I've met people who've who've come the other way, who joined sort of the coaches and consultants and that's a network of, of blueprint as sort of corporate refugees who've had pretty horrid experiences working with large organizations and have found more worthwhile work outside. Um, and maybe I've been fortunate and maybe I'm starry eyed and naive about what one hopes and thinks that a business can be. Um, but I do think, you know, um, without overstating it, that at their best, but not just per se, but at their best, businesses can be astonishing forces for good in the society mm. and provide things that people need and provide worthwhile work and relationships which are genuinely flourishing. They can, of course, do the opposite of all of those things. And we know we all know good examples of that. So so I, I haven't I haven't found it difficult. I find it intellectually very interesting. And then once I became really clear with others about what we were saying at Blueprint about the idea of purpose, and more importantly than that, actually, the idea of a more realistic view of human beings as being meaning-seeking, that we're naturally social, that we desire relationships in which we can grow and flourish as human beings through life, and that business is the arena in which we do this. You know, becoming clear in my own head that I really believed that. Has made it very easy to be passionate about it because it's just come from inside. Once I, it took two years to do all that, and and a lot longer to actually listening and working with leaders of big organisations to think that this actually can actually fly. Um, and then and then it come you know to some extent has so. And then yes, I'm a, I am a believer absolutely in in democratising ideas and trying to you know pan them on. It's not just about it's not about me. It's about a bunch of people who created this thing, um, and. Others and Sarah Gillard is now running Blueprint is absolutely as passionate about it as I was. Mm. Uh, I mean, I did decide, though, before the trustees of Blueprint were expecting me to to go. Um, so, but I gave them. There was actually a coach, um, uh, Farley, <clears throat> who, chatting one day, you know, gave me the uh, this idea of giving them two years' notice. So I did that. They were surprised, but I said, no, in two years' time, it'll need somebody else. And so they said, well, D will keyify the brand and raise some money and then we'll hire your successor. And so, you know, I did those things. But and I think that's important. You know, there is this curve, the S, whatever, the sigmoid curve in any career or any process in life, I think. And I do think it's, I think there's real truth in that, that the time to go is when you're still learning, growing, the organization is doing well, you know, you feel you're on the up. And at that point, before you get to the top of the hill, is the time to jump. Because if you look at old politics, um, where you were for a while, I mean, uh, I'd, I'd suggest you there's a lot of stories where people don't know when to get out of the room. Well, yeah, I mean, they say that all political careers end in failure. I mean, they, 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 it's yes. I mean, that there is some of that, but, but I think, I think, I don't know. It's hard to generalize, um, um, but yes, I think it, 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 it's. 
it depends what your aim is in life, really, and what you're really where your identity is. Because it's hard if you've been doing something, you know, when you've got a you you've worked very hard for it, you associate your identity in some sense with it. It is difficult to let go of that. Mm. I was talking uh, yesterday to a lovely lady um, who comes alongside the, the coaching industry. She's, she's uh, Claire Pedrick. She's, uh, she'll be on a talk, um, I think this week, actually. She wrote a book called Simplifying Coaching. And she's yeah. just published a book called um, The Human Behind the Coach. And uh, it's a lovely view. She sort of, she observes from the edge. And uh, she was, um, um, she um, this is a bit of a repetition, but but it um, she, one of the things she said is it's about when is just enough, knowing when just enough. Um, and for her, she's a seven. And um, and it's, it's for her, um, she was a teacher and, uh, and she realized having come back, she'd been overseas and came back again. And she realized the last thing in the world she could do was a bit the thought be a teacher, the thought of doing algebra with a seven-year-old next week and the week after that, the week after that. She says couldn't cope that. She loved teaching and she loved being there in the moment. But her father said something to her, which was, mustn't stay too long. Mm. And that was a few years before she and she's just handed over her business and she's still connected and she's still involved uh, very much but it's a different position it struck me that what you've done is exactly that i mustn't stay too long i'm going to go in two years but i just wondered did you have a sense of what to um when you came off and did it matter um i didn't have a worked out plan no um i don't i know no i didn't it didn't it didn't matter uh, I mean, what mattered was to give myself at that time space to go and have a bit of a think. I, I had the music plan in my head. I knew I wanted to do that, but I didn't really know what else I wanted to do. I mean, I I've been doing some business school teaching, you know, very sort of part time. And I, I thought I'd like to continue that. And I thought I probably would want to continue to work part time. And that's what I've ended up doing. So but it hasn't been a kind of jumping from this to that. It's been um, broadly exploring, exploring, I suppose. And um, and you've got two grandchildren. I have two grandchildren, two granddaughters, daughters, fifteen months and ten days. And what? Oh, well, ten days. Gosh. <laughs> so, what have they been teaching? And well, I mean, when I became a, so I've got four children, um, and um, when I became a father to my oldest son, um, it took me quite a while to feel anything to be honest i mean you know if you're pregnant and you give birth you you kind of got a, already got a rather intense relationship with this thing mm. but this turn you know the dad this small creature turns up and you're expected to love it and care for it and change its nappies and so on and it, it took me it took it just it did it took me a little while to actually feel anything and then of course after a while you do and you you have that extraordinarily strong bond what surprised me about granddaughters is that the, that bond is immediate for me, has been completely, totally. And it's a wonderful, wonderful sense of a different um, dimension. It's, a, it's, a, it's not the same as anything else. Um, and, you know, please God, I live long enough to see these two grow to adulthood. And, you know, to be a, in their lives, hopefully as a benignly subversive influence on their parents. <laughs> It feels feels to me to be a fantastic thing to do, and uh, it's another alongside. 
I think the role of grandparent is another is another alongside and it's different to parent uh, network. Yeah, I mean, they don't live around the corner, certainly. One's in, I, I live in Brighton, one's in Scotland, and one's in Bristol. But we will make, uh, my wife and I are determined to see them as often as we can, and we will. Listen, I must draw this to a close, but I just wanted to finish by um, just asking you, I mean, we've covered a lot of ground. We've gone sort of started from now and gone backwards and come forward again and stuff. Um, what would you say, knowing what you know now, now what makes, what are the qualities um, for a good alongsider? someone alongside you um but equally you as an al alongside along another in, in in different contexts would you have any thoughts on that well i i think the capacity to give attention to another person and starting with a warmth and a desire to believe the best of them and what mm -hmm. they can do i mean i think i've been able to do things that i have been able to do because people were believed in what I believed in me and were willing to give me an opportunity um, and encouragement mm. um, and also honest feedback, um, which I've been reading as a seven. We don't take very easily or very well. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on the, cult, uh, the the climate in which it's given. If it's a sort of wagging finger, definitely yeah. not. But if it's fingers a, doesn't tell now, but as I think I mentioned to you, I did show my wife the blind spots of a seven, and she said yes. <laughs> that I have the I have the full set. Yes. So um, I I I think because we all need you know in a good alongsider for me is somebody who is there, completely supportive but not uncritically, mm. and able to challenge and say well why don't you know, um, and and to yeah offer possibilities. And to encourage. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think that is the definition of uh, um, the entrepreneur, actually, in that context, because could can inspire others with the idea to uh, okay. bring people alongside and, you know, keep them there. Um, but, um, Charles, that's brilliant. Um, I really, really appreciate your time. I know everybody else would have enjoyed listening to this little amble through... Um, um Wookie um career and, and life. Um I I would suggest to you the best is yet to come. And uh and I look forward to, to witnessing that. So but for now, um thank you very much. Philip, thank you. I've very much enjoyed chatting. All right. Brilliant. Okay. Take care.